For y'all who don't know me, my name is Rick, and I am also one of the pastors here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You haven't heard me talk yet. Uh, uh, I am stoked and honored to be called by you all. The last time I was here, obviously, it was 50-50. Um, Never knew. Uh, probably a little more than 50-50, but uh, it, it, is, it is good to be here. Um, please do, if you're thinking about it, pray for me, because uh, the rest of my family is not here. And, uh, man, I like who I am a lot better when my wife's around. Uh, and so... That, and there's just lots of boxes, and uh, it's hard to navigate. But anyway, I, I could use your prayers for, for that. Um, I've never been apart from my family for three weeks. It's a long time. I don't, you, some of y'all who do like travel for business, I don't know how you do it. Um, never done it before, so this is new for me. Uh, hey, we are, over the next few weeks... Obviously, we've been celebrating Advent here uh, starting last week, and we're going to continue in that. Uh, for some of us, Advent is a tradition that we're used to. For others of us, it is not, right? Like, uh, for some of us coming in and seeing candles that are different, and why are there three purple ones, and why is there a one pink one, and, uh, you know, what's all the lighting stuff about, and it, doesn't this seem kind of strange, especially when there's a band up front and not an organ, and all this stuff is weird. And, and then you add to that the fact that we really don't need my name up there. Uh, that makes me feel really uncomfortable. Woo! All right. Let me try and recover. All right. And you add to that the fact that when you say Advent, most of us think about uh, petrified chocolate in a cardboard calendar, right? But Advent is a season in which the church... As the church, as, as God's people, as Christians, and I know not everyone in here is a Christian, but as Christians, what we're doing is we are looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. We're, we're kind of leaning into his second coming and our longings for his second coming. By, we, and we're doing so by entering into the longings of those who first were longing for his coming. And so that's what we're doing. And, and this Advent, we're taking a cue from from an Advent hymn uh, that's called Thou Who Is Rich Beyond All Splendor. And we're kind of looking at these kind of, kind of four things that, that, uh, that Jesus, as God, kind of gave up, set aside to come to earth. And so this morning we get started in John chapter 1. Uh, so if you want to grab a Bible uh, in front of you, I think it'll be projected behind me. Um, just have it out in front of you. It's good to have it out in front of you, just so you know I'm not making this stuff up. No one wants that. So um, if you've got your place, let's go ahead and stand in honor of God's word. I like that. I don't, can't remember if y'all do that or not, but we're doing it now. All right, here we go. All right, John chapter 1. This is a familiar passage, okay? That brings its dangers. For some of us, that means we're just going to tune out, think about the games this afternoon, or the cake. Let's try and hear it again for the first time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name 
was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone who was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God's word given so that you and I would flourish. Would you pray with me? Jesus, uh, whew, new beginnings. But what's not new is our neediness and our neediness for you. And so we ask that over the next few minutes as we, as we spend time together, that you would be the one speaking. Let everything that's not of you fall away. And just let everything you have done come to the forefront, especially during this season, that you might receive all the glory and that we might be changed for the good. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So one of the things that you hear a lot in our culture during this time of year is uh, talking about the Christmas spirit, right? Christmas spirit. What exactly is that? What does that mean, Christmas spirit? Uh, Often what it generally means to us is some kind of generalized sense of niceness, you know, like a general benevolence, general goodwill, maybe um, helping old ladies across the street, like that kind of thing. Like it's like, okay, I'll be kinder this time of year, but is is that what Christmas is about? Is Christmas about just being nicer? It's very American. But is it Christmas? You see, I think we're confused about Christmas because we've mistaken Christmas for giving. And that has more to do with our traditions than the scriptures, right? Uh, We've confused Christmas and said that what is Christmas? It's about giving, you know, and and it's it's, kind of. But in fact, what Christmas is about is about a mission. The Christmas spirit is about a mission. It's about stooping low. It's about giving of yourself, yes, and seeking the flourishing of another at an unmistakable cost to yourself. So this morning, what we're going to be looking at taking our cue from this hymn, uh, that if you're searching your mind, like, no, this phrase does not happen in this hymn. I'm taking the cue. We'll get to that next week, okay? But what we're going to be looking at this morning is this sense of mission, a mission that takes Jesus from omnipotent power to vulnerable weakness, all for the glory of God and the salvation of humanity. If you're a note taker, uh, there's an outline in your worship guide, right? That's what we call it here. If I call it a bulletin, Megan will get me tomorrow. Um, it's a worship guide. If, if you're not a no caker, just leave it. Uh, if you're not Presbyterian, you haven't realized yet that that's what amens sound like in, uh, in Presbyterianism. It sounds like, <laughs> mm, you know, that's, anyway. Uh, 
It's a shame. But let's, let's dig into this. So if, like I said before we began reading, if you've been a part of the church for any amount of time, you've certainly heard this passage before. It's very, very familiar. It, it is part of what we call uh, the Gospels. The Gospels are the first four, four books of the New Testament. Right? And in each of these Gospels, these, these uh, followers of Jesus have written down different beginnings of the story of Jesus. Right? So Matthew and Luke both begin with the birth of Jesus. Mark begins with, the, with Jesus' ministry, like as he's an adult and getting started in things. John begins way back, at the beginning. In fact, before the beginning. And what he's doing is he's mirroring his telling of Jesus' story after the telling of the whole story. He's mirroring his after after the beginning of the book of Genesis. And so what he wants to do in these first few verses is he wants to paint a picture of the vastness, of the greatness, of the immensity and immense power of this person he calls the Word. So look down at verses 1 to 3. He begins it with these Typical words, in the beginning. And so that is a way that what John is doing is he's trying to, especially for those who are familiar with the Bible, not everyone in here is, but if you're familiar with the Bible, that brings your mind immediately towards the first book of the Bible itself. And that's what he's doing. He wants to do that. He wants to intentionally bring to mind the beginning of the entire story of the Bible when he's talking about the beginning of, the, of his account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But unlike Genesis, John actually begins before the beginning. Did you notice that? He says, in the beginning was the Word. And those familiar with the Old Testament would be expecting, in the beginning, God. But instead, he jumps to this idea of the Word. There's a reason. And the reason that he wants to do this is because the Word was with God and the Word was God. Now, um, those, those two uh, phrases, we often just kind of gloss over them, except uh, was, right? We don't gloss over that one. The word was God. We all, we all hold on to that one really firm. But they're, they're actually the word with God being, uh, is, is there as a, a very important term also. Because two things that I want to make note on this, uh, and, and somewhat because we've already entered into deep territory, when John talks about the word, we need to understand that he identifies this word with the person of Jesus, right? That's the whole, um, he became flesh and dwelt among us. So the word is Jesus. We'll, we'll see that later, but I just want to throw that out there. And secondly, John is equating the word Jesus with God, but not without complexity, which is weird, right? I know that we're all, uh, you know, as Christians, we kind of forget that. It's weird. He's not talking about three gods. And he's not talking about the creation of something a little lower than God. He's talking about God in the singular, but with this sense of complexity. That's what the word with means. And that's part of the Christian understanding of God. And it's completely unique to us that God exists in three persons and one substance. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one substance. Completely unique to the Christian way of looking at the world. Completely unique. John is talking about the one God of the Bible now revealed as consisting of multiple persons in community. That's what that word with means. It's alongside, it's like a withness. Is he fully, you know, going to work it all out for us here at the beginning? No? Is he going to help us in our more Western Greek minds be able to do the math problem? Nope. Nope. 
Doesn't feel the need to do that. I guess that's what God made systematic theologians for. You can head down to RTS. I'm sure they'll do a lecture on it at some point. That's not what he's doing. He's, he's literally just stating it. This word is the one through whom all things are created. Again, Genesis echoes. But what John is trying to do is he's trying to tell us the word who, who Christians would later refer to as the, the son of God, the eternal son of God. That he, in fact, is God and he created everything there is. He's the creator of everything. If it came into being, if it exists, it exists because of him. Okay? But not just that, he's also the source of life. Look down at verses 4 and 5. In him, the word, was life, and the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Okay? Again, man, I, you know, maybe, maybe we'll do a, a, a Sunday school class at some point, kind of overlaying that, the book of Genesis chapter 1 and this, just to help you get all of that out. But but all of this is meant to, again, hearken back to Genesis. But there's an important distinction, or maybe it's not a difference. It's, an, it's, it's, it's like a development. He says that in him, in the word, was life. Life. We move on to the light part really easy, but it's the life that's the important thing. Life finds its source in the word. What does that mean? Well, I know that you and I would like to think that um, we are kind of the captains of our souls, right? I'm the captain. I, I'm, the, I'm the, the, the one who kind of holds everything together for me. And what, what, God, what John is saying here at the beginning of his gospel is that you and I, everyone, is a dependent creature. That if we're going to have life, that life is coming from another source, a source from whom all life comes. Someone who is independent. That we were designed for dependence on that one. He's trying, John is trying to get across as clearly and poetically as he can that the guy that he's going to take 21 chapters to tell you about, the guy of whom he's going to say all the books in the world could not, even if we filled them, could not tell you everything he did, that this person is God, that he existed before anything existed. And if you and I are taking that breath and that one, it's because of him. That it's all because of him. And then we have this light and darkness stuff, right? So in the book of Genesis, darkness is about chaos, okay? Whereas light is more about order. And it's the order that God brings to things. And John tells us that the light which is Jesus, again, shines in the darkness, but the darkness could not overcome it. Now, that word overcome is a really cool word uh, in, in the original, and it, it, me, it's, it has an aggressive tone to it. It brings to it this sense of taking hold of or overwhelming something else, which the entire point that John is trying to get across, again, right here at the beginning, of a story in which the majority of this story is going to be seeing this person, the Word, who becomes flesh and is Jesus. We're going to see him in this point of weakness a little later. But the entire first five verses is John trying to tell us. God of the universe created all things. All life comes from him and he is unstoppable. The darkness cannot take hold of him. There is nothing that can stop him. Do you get the picture of that? 
Because I think we need to hear that probably more than anything else this time of year. Because everything in our culture wants to domesticate Jesus. Right? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. That's what we say this time of year. We love it. We like to think of Jesus however we want. Like the Ricky Bobby baby Jesus prayer. Some of you are chuckling. Dear eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus, golden fleece diaper. Talladega Nights, really? Okay. YouTube it, all right? YouTube it. It's really, really funny. Okay. But the entire point of that and what makes that so funny is that is exactly what we do. I like to think of my Jesus the way I want to think of him. I like to think of him as a guru in Birkenstocks. You know, like that's the kind of thing that we want to think of him as. And what John is trying to tell us is that you, if you want, if, we just don't have that option. There's no option to do that. Jesus is not a moral teacher. He's not a social ethicist. He's not a religious guru. And he's not an all-around nice guy. He is the omnipotent God of the universe. And when I say that, I know that some of us who, who uh, may have gotten into some of the more, you know, this time of year, it's like Newsweek in time. When it's like this time of year in Easter, and Easter, and they always they put out some article, and it's some new view of Jesus. Like, all of a sudden, ancient texts discovered, right? They're not new. Like, we've known about these for a long time, but, but we, we read those, and we go, wait a minute, Rick, aren't you just, aren't you just kind of giving preference to to views of Jesus that kind of won the fight? Are you privileging those beliefs? And you're right. I mean, there are writings written a couple of hundred years after Jesus died that speak of him differently. But I would say this, if that's you and you're thinking about those things, not every writing that bears Jesus as a character is historical. For instance, 10 years ago, there were two films put out the same year about Abraham Lincoln. One had Daniel Day-Lewis in it. It was called Lincoln. The other had Abraham Lincoln run around the forest with hatchets killing vampires. No one in their right mind would say that they were equally historical just because they both had the same head lead character in it. Right? The same thing with that. These books, written by those who are closest to Jesus with the most to lose for saying what they did, proclaim him as God. He's not buddy Christ. He is almighty God. He is holy and awesome and worthy of our worship because he made us and he gives us life. But John isn't just talking about power. He's also talking about a way of weakness. Okay? Let's look at the failure to receive. John says that he, Jesus, was the true light that illuminates all humanity. He was coming into the world. So this divine world, this almighty God who creates all things and is owed all worship is coming into the world. And we should expect that if that is the case, people are setting out parades and we're all going, welcome home, right? Wrong. Keep reading. He was in the world and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. Huh? Gets better. He came unto his own creation, or his own, and his own people did not receive him. When I read this, I get the image, and yeah, probably it's, I get this image because it's Christmas time, but I get the image of It's a Wonderful Life, right? When, when George, 
finally gets his wish, and he comes back into town, and no one knows who he is. Like, he's, he's walking up to people. He finally walks up to his wife, and she's like, thinks he's a creeper and wants to get him arrested because uh, she's not his wife anymore because George didn't exist. This is the idea that he came into his own. He came to a world that he created, and not only did no one know him, but they reject him. Why? I mean, that's not warm and fuzzy. That's not part of Christmas. Well, the reason is actually found in the part of Genesis that John leaves out. Because you see, the, the story that the Bible tells is of God creating the universe. And he creates it all, and it's all good. And then he creates humanity, and he creates the male and female, and it's good. And he puts them in a garden, and he, asks, he tells them to spread that garden and, and multiply, to spread his loving and just rule across the globe. Good. But something happened, right? See, we're designed to be dependent on him. We're designed to find him as that source of life, but we believed a lie. And that lie was simply this that we could, and in fact, we had to be the source of our own life because he wasn't trustworthy of it. And that we could become that source of our own life. We could be like him by eating a fruit. How gullible do you have to be, right? Of course, now we, we don't have to think anything like that anymore, right? We don't think that it's a fruit that could be the thing that gives us fullness. No, it's not a fruit. It's that promotion. It's that boy that sits two rows up, and a row over. It's, it's that career that we want. It's the love that we can't get. It's the acceptance that we think if we just had it. It's the applause. It's our name up on a projector screen. <laughs> See, we turned away from him. We betrayed the one who owed us nothing but gave us everything. And when we did, everything changed. Our relationship with God was broken. So that now, fundamentally, all of humanity is bent away from him. And, and what that did is it resulted in three things. It resulted in guilt, obviously, and you know this because you've betrayed people and people have betrayed you. There's always a cost, right? And so it, it created guilt. It also created this thing called, uh, that, that we call corruption, which all that means is that we're born uh, with an assumption, and that assumption is God can't be trusted. You don't have to be taught that. It just is what we assume. But it also left us feeling alienated. Right? The, the, the relationship we're made for we no longer have, which is why we always feel like there's a party going on that we're not invited to. Okay, here it is. You and I were made to be dependent on God, but now because of our sin, we want nothing to do with him. In fact, we don't want to be dependent at all. And so God comes in to restore relationship with us, but we don't want it. We don't want it. We don't think that he's trustworthy of it. It's, it, we doubted his good heart. At the end of the day, we do that because we still believe the lie that God isn't for us. And that if we just get that fruit, whatever that fruit is for you, finally make it, we'll get there on our own. We can be like God. Now, some of us connect to that, right? If you're anything like me, you connect immediately to that because we are runners, 
And I don't mean runners. I mean, I run, but that's not what I mean. I mean like runners from God. We've been running for a while. We're just not sure we believe any of this anyway. But others of us are like, Rick, I've been going to church my whole life, and I am pretty good. Congratulations. That's, now here's the reality. If you and I are serving God to get something from him, if we're serving God because, well, it's the right thing to do and I'll get the right reputation and, and, and if I do that, if I have my quiet time in the morning, I'll have a good day at work. Or if, 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 I, if I do this the right way, then, then uh, that blessing that I'm looking for will come. You know what I'm talking about. And you're like, oh, I can't connect to that. You can because when it doesn't happen, you immediately run to, it's because I haven't been praying enough. Right? No, okay, that's not you. When we are serving God to get something from God, you aren't serving God at all. You're serving those things and you're using God. But he's not your Coke machine where you put in your quarter, press your button, and get your blessing. That is not God. That is not who he is. We are to love and serve and glorify God because he is God and we are his. But we don't because we are sinners. But here's the good news. John talks about the right to believe. Look down at verses 12 to 14. To those who did receive him, he says, he gave the right to become children of God, born of God. Some of you are thinking, like, wait a minute, Rick. You just said relationship is broken, that we're all in sin, that we're all turned away. Yes, but God. Yes, but God had something to say about that. And that, friends, is what the spirit of Christmas is really all about. So stay with me. Because God made a promise on that same day in which we turned away from him and broke everything. He said, I'm going to make this right. Right? Genesis 3.15, he basically says, I'm going to do this. I am going to fix what you broke. I am going to rescue you. And that is what John is talking about here. Humanity messed things up by wanting to be God. So God fixed it by becoming human. Humanity plunged ourselves into guilt by trying to take God's place, so God, to save us from our guilt, became human to take our place. This is why the Word became flesh and dwelling among us. Jesus came from that place of glory, that place of power, that place of omnipotence, of not needing a thing, and he stooped down to be born in a cave of all places, to enter into the miseries of this life, he made himself vulnerable, sinned against day after day while never sinning in return, and finally he bore our guilt on the cross. You cannot separate Christmas from the cross. Because when you do, it just, just becomes a sappy Roth, you know, Norman Rockwell painting. Jesus didn't come to become a baby. He came to die in our place. But to do so, he had to become a baby. He did this because we could never be restored to relationship until our sin was dealt with, and so he dealt with it by dying for it. He did it so that he could make us new. He died so that we could be given, did you notice this? The right to become children of God. The right. And not to become servants. That would be pretty cool. I mean, if you went from enemy to servant, you'd be happy. From traitor deserving death to servant 
being able to work for the guy, you'd be like, that's great. But from enemy to son or daughter? Who does that? From rebel to child. Can you believe that? Because that's what Christmas is about. It's about God leaving the glories of heaven to become what he made to save us from judgment that you and I deserve. But why? Because I know, and again, this is part of the thing that happens when we sit in this too too often. It becomes too pedestrian for us. We seem to think that God's job is to do this. Right? Like, why should God forgive me? Well, isn't that what God does? Not in any other world religion. <laughs> no, sir. No. I think the answer is in verse 11. He came unto his own. His own. You know what that's like, right? That's mine. I want that thing. I want that person. I want to be with them. In other words, Jesus went on a mission that took him from omnipotent power to vulnerable weakness to the glory of God and the salvation of humanity out of love. And so friends, if we're, if we're going to enter into the spirit of Christmas, the Christmas spirit this year, it's going to mean a couple of things, all right? The first and foremost thing it's going to mean is it's going to mean bringing Jesus. And I know that that bugs some of us here, and I get it, I get it, because we think that exclusive religious claims are just wrong, right? Yeah, I know some of us have been walking with Jesus for a long time. Some of us were just here, I don't know, somebody invited us, said there's cake, right? And so we came, we're like, I like free cake. And so we're not really sure about this whole thing, but what we do know is that exclusive religious claims are just out of bounds. They're kind of, they're, religious claims are supposed to be like preferences, right? Like whether you like wine or beer, whether you like uh, McDonald's or Burger King, Coke or Pepsi. Coke, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Diet Coke. And it is different than Diet Pepsi. Um, but here's the thing. In Western culture, we treat religion as a cultural phenomenon. It kind of grows up out of, this, out of culture. And so accepting an exclusive claim is seen as kind of privileging one culture over another. We go, we can't do that. You with me? But here's the thing about that. You may, if that's what you believe, uh, let, me, let me just challenge you with this. That view of religion is completely a product of Western culture. So the exclusive claim that religions are, are cultural phenomena and you can't privilege one over the, another is itself a Western cultural claim. It is privileging Western culture's view of things over every other. And I know you don't want to do that, right? So maybe we back off of that one. We can't prove that. We just accept it. But if John is right, and here's the great thing that kind of, kind of just sidesteps that whole argument. If John is right, then Christianity transcends culture. Here's why. John says, before creation, before anything, before you and I ever had a thought of like, what do I get for dinner? Like before any of that happens, God. Not God's. God. The world he made was broken by us, but he came to fix it. Not by giving advice, but by giving Jesus. 
You're like, wait, Rick, aren't all religions the same? Yes, all religions are the same. I'm not talking about religion, right? Religion gives you the ways that you have to work to get back to God. Christianity is giving you the ways that God worked to get you. That's what Christianity is giving you. And so if, if yes, if religion is, here are the ways you, you, you need to work to get back to God, then yeah, they are all interchangeable. Go with that. Sure. Absolutely. But Christianity is not about that. It's here's what God did to get to you. Will you accept that? It's not about what you do. It's about what God did. That's the glory of it. Do you see why John can say, we beheld his glory? What would be more glorious than someone who was completely offended and betrayed, going, I, I'm going to give everything. I'm going to love them to death. What would be more glorious than that? Do you want, you want to know why you and I and like everyone else in this city feel so alienated? Why no relationship seems to satisfy us? Why we always feel lonely? I know half of us in this room got married so that we would never be lonely again. And yet, others of us are waiting to get married so that we'll never be lonely again. Guess what? The reason is because we are hungering for the one relationship we were made for. You, me, our friends, our neighbors. Without Jesus, we're left hungering. We're left in darkness. And so first, we've got to bring Jesus. Second, though, if we're going to bring light to the world, it will mean becoming flesh. And what I mean by that is when God wanted to rescue the world, he became flesh. He didn't visit. Uh, he didn't go on vacation. Uh, he moved in. Literally, the word means to dwell. It means tabernacle. He, he pitched a tent, and he moved in. He's saying, I'm taking up my residence here. What do we do? We yell at the darkness. Can't believe how dark this world is. Can't believe how bad my neighborhood is. Can you, can you believe what they're teaching in schools today? This city, my workplace, those coworkers. Friends, we celebrate Christmas because God looked with compassion on you and I who dwelled in darkness of our own making. Of our own making. And you and I, we see people dwell in darkness, we're like, well, they did it to themselves. Yes, they did. And so did you. And so did I. And God looked with compassion on us and said, they, like, they don't know what they're doing. So he moved in. He dwelt. He lived with us. He knew our problems because he felt them. He lived next door to them. And so entering into the Christmas spirit is going to mean going into darkness and setting up camp. If your neighborhood is dark, what would it be like to begin actually knowing your neighbors? Inviting them into your home, no matter whether you agree with their lifestyle or not. Just having them over for dinner. If your school is dark, what would it look like to spend time there praying and serving those in it? If, if your workplace is dark, what, is it, what does it look like to begin hanging out with your coworkers, just seeing how you can care for them? Now, don't get me wrong, that can never be an end unto itself, right? Jesus didn't just become flesh and dwell. Because if that's all he did, we'd have a good example. And that's not what we have. He perfectly lived, he sacrificially died, and he gloriously rose. We dwell with others so that we can bring the gospel to others. 
Now, why do we do it? Well, John says it's because we've seen his glory. But the better question would probably be, why do we not do it? Because if we're going to be honest with ourselves and with each other, and I'd rather, you know, let, let's kick this off on the right foot and just be honest with each other, that if, if that's happening, it's probably because, you know, we're afraid of not being accepted. We're afraid of being looked at with contempt. We're afraid of it costing us something. And you see, this is where the gospel comes in and frees us. This is where the gospel comes and frees us. Because if Jesus has given us everything, in other words, you didn't do anything to get it, can't do anything to lose it. If he's given us everything, then there's nothing that anything can give us. Because he's given it all already. And it frees us to work to help others see the glory that we've seen. We've seen it. We want others to see it. We want him to receive more of it. And if you're, if, again, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to understand that what we're talking about, I know it sounds weird to you, we don't do this to get more glory for our tribe. Right? We don't do this because we're insecure and we're wondering, like, the more people believe like me, the less I'll feel marginalized. No, 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 no. Eh. Eh. We do this because we want him to receive more glory because he's worthy of it. So if you're here this morning and that isn't compelling to you, Christian or not, if that's not compelling to you, may I suggest that maybe we need to return to the gospel that tells us that you and I are more sinful than we could have possibly dared think and way more loved than we've ever dreamed. Because God, who is powerful all for love's sake, became weak so that you and I might be restored to him. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we, we give you praise for that. A thousand tongues could not proclaim enough glory that you should receive because of that truth. We give you glory now. And for those of us who just struggle to give you glory in the midst of it, we ask, Lord, that you would give us faith. For those of us who are struggling even right now to even believe any of it, give us faith. Give us faith to see you, to know you, to love you, and to help see others do the same. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.